The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 1 through 7 of the Kreutzer Sonata. As the story opens, a passenger on a train describes his fellow travelers, a plain young lady with a harassed look and a mannish coat, a talkative lawyer of about 40 in neat and new attire, and a man with curly gray hair, abrupt movements, and glittering eyes, dramatically attired in an embroidered shirt and a fur coat and cap, seemingly depressed by loneliness, staring out the window, rebuffing attempts at conversation, and emitting a strange noise that sounds like a laugh sharply broken off. This man has the appearance of one bristling with something to tell, and soon we will learn what it is. The train is then boarded by a tall, wrinkled old tradesman in skunk fur and a young tradesman's clerk, who roar with laughter over tales of drunken orgies. The lady and the lawyer gossip about a woman who has left her husband, and this leads into a discussion among all the passengers on the question of divorce. The old tradesman declares that things like that are happening more and more, because people have become too educated, and that the only answer is for the female sex to be curbed, and for society to return to a condition in which woman fears her husband. The lady bemoans the time when women were forced into loveless marriages and paired off with indifference to their own inclinations and attachments, as if they were cattle and not human beings. The clerk glances from face to face, prepared to take the part of whichever passenger's ideas are best received. Our narrator mostly listens, only interjecting an observation of the apparent contradiction between the tradesman's amused recollections of going on the spree and his traditionalist views of faithfulness in marriage. And the lonely gray-haired man with the glittering eyes emits a sound like a broken laugh or a sob, and approaches evidently agitated and very interested, and joins the discussion. The lady has declared that love sanctifies marriage, and that real marriage is only such as is sanctified by love. And the gray-haired man questions her about what, precisely, she means by love. He refuses to accept her response that everybody knows what love is, or the lawyer's unhelpful explanation that is no more than a restatement of what the lady has already said. He prods them into precision, not allowing them to resort to conventional and unexamined terms. When the lady defines love as, quote, preference for one above everybody else, unquote, he responds simply, a preference for how long? He refuses to accept that a marriage based on preference can last a lifetime, and makes a memorable comparison to the likelihood of two marked peas in a cartload always lying side by side. He equates love defined as preference with physical attraction, and insists that this sort of love is, quote, experienced by every man for every pretty woman, unquote. He mockingly dismisses the notion that there can be a love based on spiritual affinity or identity of ideals, since if that were so, they would have no need to go to bed together. In his mind, there are only two choices, 
marriage as something sacramental, binding two people in the sight of God, or copulation. And he says that when one lives the latter while trying to maintain a pretense of the former, they are driven to hate, to hell, to drink, and even to murder, like he was. And then he begins his story. He says that as a young man he lived like all young men in society do, dissolutely, all the while convinced that he was a charming fellow and a moral man. After all, he was not a seducer, not a pervert, not a womanizer, and he was careful to avoid diseases, children, and women's attachment. This, in his mind, and according to the standards of society, is all that constitutes morality in relation to women. He has since realized, he says, that this is, quote, the abyss of error in which we live regarding women and our relations with them, unquote. And that, quote, real debauchery lies precisely in freeing oneself from moral relations with a woman with whom you have physical intimacy, unquote. As a boy, he was tormented by woman's nudity, and then one day he was taken by a comrade to a brothel and, quote, took part in defiling a woman without at all understanding what he was doing, unquote. He says he was horrified, he suffered, he prayed, and he fell. But what was worse, he now knows, was that he fell without at all understanding that it was a fall. For all his life he had been taught that it was natural. He was told by doctors that it was good for his health, encouraged by comrades that it was a spirited thing to do, and protected from diseases by a paternal government. He reflects with horror on the treatment he and all such debauched young men receive in society. When these profligates enter a ballroom, rather than protecting our innocent girls and scolding these men to be off, we are jubilant, if they are rich and well-connected, when they honor our daughters with attention. He bemoans the irony of having been himself weltered in mire and debauchery, while seeking a girl pure enough to be worthy of him. And so, one day, he found her. He met the daughter of a landowner, became entranced by her curls and her shapely figure, convinced himself under the delusion that beauty is goodness, that she was the acme of moral perfection, and proposed. He describes with dismay the novelistic presentation of the romantic hero and his great love, which always leaves out the profligacy of his past, and says that even if such truthful and improper novels existed, we would not put them in the hands of those who need them most, unmarried girls. He explains that he himself, of necessity, showed his diary to his fiancée, and she reacted with horror, despair, and confusion but tragically, she did not give him up. He expresses disgust with the mothers who pretend to believe in the purity of men, but then use men's depravity to trap them. They train their daughters to be coquettes, who go along with men's pretense of high sentiments, knowing all the while that they are lying and only want their bodies, and they use all the means available to them to allure the life of the upper classes, he says, is no more than a brothel. 
and that he was trapped by his wife's jerseys and curls and bustles is what eventually would lead to her murder. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Tolstoy's Glittering Eyes. One of the things I love about these early chapters is what I perceive as Tolstoy's aggravated impatience with the superficial way in which people engage with ideas. In an afterword to the story, he was very explicit that he identified with the ideas of his hero, however madly and violently dramatized those ideas might have been. So when I read these chapters, I imagine Tolstoy himself eavesdropping on the passengers' facile discussion, aggravated by their intellectual sloppiness and their conventionalism, pressing people into greater clarity and precision, and bristling with his own grave, righteous, forthright, inexorable pursuit of the truth. The old man's hypocrisy and traditionalism, the lady's superficial radicalism, and the clerk's cowardly second-handedness are all contrasted with the intellectual ruthlessness of the gray-haired man with the glittering eyes. The old tradesman is portrayed as a mindless traditionalist and authoritarian, who thinks that if he just says things loud enough, he will be in the right. His argument is that education is what has led to matrimonial discord, and when asked why, he adds the dubiously helpful explanation that foolishness comes from education. But nevertheless, his listeners are vanquished by his categorical declarations and his impressive tone. He is also presented as a hypocrite, who, when asked to reconcile his sacred belief in marital faithfulness with his amused stories of married men's drunken orgies at the fair, has only this to offer as an answer. That's a different matter. The lady is presented as one whose progressive ideas, which to her probably seem very new, are in fact conventional, simplistic, and unexamined. The essence of her argument is that only love sanctifies marriage, but when pressed, she can do little to explain what she even means by love. The clerk is presented as having no mind of his own. He merely watches the dynamics of the conversation so that he might adopt the ideas most favorably received. He glances at the faces of the other passengers, quote, suppressing a smile and prepared to ridicule or to approve of the tradesmen's words according to the reception they met with, unquote. And after the old man makes a point, jerking his head with a stern and victorious look, quote, the clerk at once concluded that victory was on his side and laughed loudly, unquote. In general, the clerk merely sits by, listening and smiling, quote, trying to store up for future use all he could of the clever conversation, unquote. In the midst of all this, Poznashev appears agitated, his eyes glowing as if aflame, and repeatedly emitting his characteristic sound, like a choked laugh or a sob. He says, They talk, and they always lie. In the face of all this mindlessness and superficiality and dishonesty, he feels explosive with truth. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was about my favorites from chapters 1 through 7. 
Tolstoy's cynicism is depicted with scathing and incisive artistry. Anna Karenina is the only book I have both loved and physically thrown across the room because of Tolstoy's matchless power to concretize profound ideas and because those ideas are so often abhorrent to me. So here are some of my favorites from this chapter because of Tolstoy's remarkable ability to make palpable the most abstract of ideas. On the absurdity of the idea that preference can be reciprocal for a lifetime, quote, No, sir, it can't. Just as it cannot be that in a cartload of peas, two marked peas will lie side by side, unquote. On the superficiality of religious instruction, quote, it is true it is in the commandments, but then the commandments are only needed to answer the priest at scripture examination, and even then they are not very necessary, not nearly as necessary as the commandment about the use of ut in conditional sentences in Latin, unquote. On doctors' disregard for matters of morality, quote, doctors too deal with sexually transmitted disease for a consideration. That is proper. They assert that debauchery is good for the health, and they organize proper, well-regulated debauchery, unquote. On the hypocrisy of well-polished profligates, quote, And when all these gentlemen, and I, who have on our souls hundreds of the most varied and horrible crimes against women— when we thirty-year-old profligates, very carefully washed, shaved, perfumed, in clean linen and in evening dress or uniform, enter a drawing-room or ballroom, we are emblems of purity, charming, unquote. And on the delusion that beauty is goodness, quote, It is amazing how complete is the delusion that beauty is goodness. A handsome woman talks nonsense. You listen and hear not nonsense, but cleverness. She says and does horrid things, and you see only charm. And if a handsome woman does not say stupid or horrid things, you at once persuade yourself that she is wonderfully clever and moral. Unquote. I hope you have enjoyed or at least been intrigued by this story so far, and I look forward to sharing chapters 8 through 14 with you tomorrow.